Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I'll be talking with Reese Peck, who is the author of Fox Populism, Branding Conservatism as Working Class. The book is published this year by Cambridge University Press, and I have the real pleasure to have one of my CUNY family members on the podcast. Reese, how are you doing? I'm really good. How are you doing? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, I've loved the book, loved reading it. Um, and very curious uh, about asking a number of questions about the work. Uh, before we get to that, maybe you can just introduce yourself a little bit. Yeah. Um, so I got my PhD uh, at UC San Diego in the Department of Communication. And uh, bef- before that, a little more personal background, I grew up in Salt Lake City, Utah. And you know, part of the inspiration for the book really started in my undergraduate years when I kind of came of political age, so to speak. Uh, This was during, to date myself, this is during the heart of the Bush era. And and one thing that I I was fascinated with um, was witnessing how the Bush administration uh, politically instrumentalized country music, uh, specifically in the buildup to uh, the Iraq war. Now, my family, specifically my brother, was actually an aspiring country singer who tried to make it in Nashville. And country has always been a central part of my family gatherings. And so I, I went into graduate school with this kind of vexing question about the relationship between uh, partisanship and uh, taste, between ideology and style. And looking back now, I, I really realized that was the kernel of the kind of political cultural uh, approach that I would develop for studying Fox News and for studying partisan journalistic styles more more generally. You grew up in the amazing, beautiful mountains of Utah, and you're now here in New York City. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of where you are uh, professionally? Professionally, so I'm an assistant professor at the College of Staten Island. Um, I am you know, at the end of my, my 10 year track process, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting to finally have this book out and, uh, to, 
you know, feel like an intellectual and, and, and give talks and, and see what the world thinks of this argument uh, and study that I've been concocting for quite some time. Great. Well, we will do nothing on the podcast today to derail your, I'm sure, successful tenure and promotion uh, at the College of Staten Island. So let's t- talk about the book um, and start with uh, some of you, uh, an understanding of how you approach some of these key terms. So in your title, you refer to populism and also conservatism. When you use these terms in the context of the book, what do you mean by each? Well, as you know, populism has been a very uh, um, salient word in the last two years. And, and as such, it, it is debated. It's been debated endlessly. The definition, what is populism? So political theorists like Ernesto Laclau argue it is precisely the ambiguity of the term that gives it its power, that it is kind of an empty signifier that you can uh, assign to uh, almost any ideological project or social movement or, or uh, social group. Uh, the way that I look at it is I, I try to set up a model for not just understanding populism in terms of kind of linguistic uh, political rhetoric, but also populism as an embodied uh, performative style. So I divide populism up as both a narrative, which is kind of traditionally how it's been approached uh, in, in kind of more linguistic centered studies of political rhetoric, but also as um, a performance, the, a performative style. And generally, to go back to the, you know, populism as rhetoric, uh, it's essentially a way of representing the political sphere that radically divides it into two uh, camps. And if we apply this to the, the media sphere, it, it, Fox News, the way that I, I write about and analyze, radically divides the media sphere into two dueling media systems, one for the elite and one for the people or the folks, as Bill O'Reilly would call it. So it is a, um, a narrative rhetorical tradition that American politicians and in turn uh, news outlets, particularly tabloid outlets, have used to um, uh, advance ideological point of views and to add kind of moral authority, really, to uh, the political positions uh, that they promote. So much of the focus of your book is on understanding Rupert Murdoch. Uh, for those who do not know his backstory, his, his interesting and relevant backstory, I wonder if you'd give us the, the short biography of this owner of Fox News. So Rupert Murdoch is um, a fascinating character. Many biographies have been written on, on Murdoch. Uh, what I found interesting was the way that he developed um, – this understanding of class early on in his uh, media ca- career. So he cut his teeth in the infamous Fleet Street sector of London, right, where the, this very ferocious competitive um, uh, news industry. And under the, the guidance of his mentor, Lord Beaverbrook, right, uh, he kind of understood that, that news marketing had to do with class and appealing to different class sectors, and not necessarily in an econ- uh, economic, uh, economic way, but more in a normative uh, cultural way. And so he brought this tabloid style back to his home country of Australia and turned uh, various newspapers into tabloid outlets. And he used a similar kind of anti-elite uh, market positioning strategy that he would bring 
back to the UK and then eventually to the US, where he'd find a, a kind of uh, established uh, uh, news uh, outlet and then counter-program to them, paint them as the elite out of touch uh, and, and paint his paper as uh, tapping the pulse of the people. Uh, and, and so that, that starts very early on. Uh, but he gets to the U.S. and he finds out that his, the working class kind of taste strategy that he used in London with uh, tabloid papers like The Sun and News of the World was not working or it was yielding mediocre profits. So the first real attempt to adapt a kind of British style tabloid format to uh, the U.S. is really the New York Post, because in the U.K., tabloids were not just about celebrity uh, sex uh, scandals or uh, UFO sightings and things like that, or sports, they mixed uh, those tabloid elements with political editorializing and, and, and partisan views. So this kind of tabloid partisan mix, uh, it, it, he brought this uh, back to the U.S. with the New York Post, but he was finding that he didn't have the kind of political clout that he had in the U.K., and, and, and one thing he came to realize was that in, in the U.S., um, the television set reigned supreme, not uh, the newsstand. So he shifted News Corp, the, the kind of uh, media conglomerate that he established in Australia, uh, shift their energies in the U.S. toward television. And he, he purchases and launches Fox Broadcasting Network, the first uh, successful fourth network. Um, which in of itself is an amazing feat. Many, many, there was many attempts to establish a, a fourth network and break the kind of triopoly between ABC, CBS, and NBC. But Murdoch was the first to actually pull it off. And, and let's talk sort of historically. What is the time period that we are now in with Murdoch's move into television? Um, and as, as you talk about that, there's this, this style that he brought to news which is different than the traditional style of news at the time. Uh, maybe you could talk about the, what the, the tradition had been stylistically and how Murdoch's style was very different from this in, in uh, his, his, uh, the TV news operations that he was involved with. Yeah, so journalism scholars uh, such as Dan Hallen have used the term the high modern style of journalism. And this style was really embodied by uh, Walter Cronkite, you know, this detached um, uh, middle brow voice, right, that was really envisioned the news anchor as an informational expert. And their job was to inform the public. And, and this reigned from the 1940s all the way to the 1980s, this, this detached kind of anchoring style. And it, which saw, you know, injecting your personal opinion or your emotion as a liability to your legitimacy. And Murdoch really broke that mold. And the first attempt to adapt a kind of tabloid style to uh, the medium of television that my book examines was A Current Affair. I really uh, emphasize how important uh, A Current Affair, which was a News Corp product, uh, syndicated tabloid television program. Uh, that was hosted by Mari Povich in the late 80s. And interestingly enough, at the exact same time, there was another aspiring tabloid anchor named Bill O'Reilly that worked for Inside Edition. So Bill O'Reilly was in direct competition with uh, Mari Povich at A Current Affair. And it's in this moment, really, that, that Mari Povich, and with Bill O'Reilly following, and then a, a slew of copycats that start to follow uh, a, a Current Affair, that you get... Uh, this new 
style of anchoring that does inject uh, personal opinion, that does take sides, um, that uses body language, uh, emotional forms of communication to engage their audiences and connect uh, with their audiences that, that I, I try to argue is kind of the beginning of this style. Uh, the problem with the current affair and these tabloid shows is they lacked uh, kind of political seriousness. They were not taken serious by uh, the political establishment and the journalistic establishment, mainly because their editorial focus only looked at soft news topics. So they weren't this mix between, you know, tabloid, a tabloid style and then politics. Uh, they really stayed away from politics. So it's with Fox News that you truly get the confluence of those two things on American television. And now Fox News um, uh, begins. Is it the Fox News that we see today or is, is Murdoch's initial foray into creating Fox News different somehow? Maybe you can compare in some ways uh, the, the style and approach that was taken at its uh, origin from what we've become familiar with today. Right. So uh, journalists like Gabriel Sherman and his excellent book, uh, you know, Loudest Voice in the Room, biography on Roger Ailes, he, he notes how in the beginning of Fox's history, the, the very early launching years, 96, 97, 98, that he argues the network was more populist and tabloid than conservative. Uh, and there was this moment where um, there really was a sort of conflict or war between two factions of the organization. There was a tabloid kind of wing that uh, really came from the tabloid production staff that Roger Ailes, the, the founding CEO of Fox News, recruited. So Roger Ailes, many uh, forget this, that he was a consultant for a current affair and inside edition. So he was well aware of the kind of talent of the tabloid sector. And he recruited people like Bill O'Reilly and Shepard Smith and, and a slew of other um, uh, producers, as well as Geraldo Rivera later in 2001. But there was another wing that was kind of, we could say, is the prestige wing. Uh, and these are folks like Britt Hume uh, and, and John Moody, who come from traditional uh, journalistic backgrounds. And they were kind of a ballast or a counterweight to this, tab this tabloid wing. Uh, and so th there was this tension there in the beginning. Uh, and yes, they were conservative, uh, but they were still uh, practicing uh, journalism in the mold of the traditional kind of Cronkite style. Now, as far as, I'm not sure what your question is, when did, it, when did Fox change and become more uh, overtly conservative? Or I'm not, I'm not sure what the question is there. Yeah. So the question is whether it's changed over time. And one of the things that you argue is that Fox News has successfully linked the working class people that it caters to with a business class of people. And some of this is reflected in these two different wings that, that you just articulated. I wonder how has Fox News done this? Because for most people's impression, this would be a, um, a merger that doesn't uh, seem to make very much sense. How have they created a style that is as attractive to their working class uh, viewers as the business class viewers? Well, one of the things that I point to is the, the resonance of these very old um, rhetorical and, and narrative traditions that engage the issue of wealth and, and wealth distribution. So when, my study really zeroes in on the Great Recession and specifically Fox's coverage of the financial crisis 
which I, I saw as a fascinating case study because here you have a moment where you'd think uh, the Democrats would have a natural advantage and conservatives who have historically you know, supported tax cuts for the rich and deregulation would, be, would have a disadvantage. And, and yet I was fascinated how Fox was able to take these, these old tropes about the producers versus the parasites and, and these, these moral rationales about, you know, we should live in an economy that rewards hard work and labor uh, and remunerates, you know, those who produce and, and, and doesn't reward the, the kind of parasitic groups. And, and so I, I kind of make the argument that Fox's approach to uh, uh, economic news stories is less about this kind of technical economic reasoning and is more about uh, using uh, these moral economic principles that are, are deeply seated in American culture to draw an alliance between the business class and the working class that is more about uh, a shared morality a shared commitment to uh, a meritocratic economy than it is necessarily about um, immediate the immediate self-interest of each one of these divergent economic groups. So you you sort of just uh, alluded to the the way in which um, Fox News has has relied on um, uh, uh, an approach to to information that has downplayed sort of expertise. Um, but you do in the book describe a certain approach they have to working with uh, think tanks and, and experts. Um, how have they done this? How have they incorporated um, science, ideas, evidence uh, into the, the style that you've described, which seems so antithetical to that? Right. This is one of the great ironies uh, that I point to in the book, that on one hand, Fox News appropriated a kind of conservative populism that comes from the Nixon era that centered on a story about how educated elites have, have taken over the government and how they, they take the wealth of, of you know, traditional producing class Americans and impose foreign ideas on them. And at the exact same time, the conservative movement is building up its think tank infrastructure and promoting uh, conservative intellectuals like Milton Friedman and, and William F. Buckley. Uh, and, and so, uh, yeah, that's, it, it's a very intriguing paradox. And so what I, wanted, what I wanted to look at is the way that they handle that contradiction in their actual programming. And so you'll see in the later chapter of my book, uh, I, I try to show how they, in fact, incorporate expert forms of knowledge uh, and promote conservative intellectual culture on their populist shows and how they keep the kind of elitism of expert knowledge at arm's length. And they have various maneuvers uh, to kind of uh, bring down to earth this this uh, elite rarefied knowledge, uh, while at the same time using its prestige and using its authority to advance uh, its conservative economic arguments. So it's a very delicate uh, uh, balance between the populist everyday hosts like Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity, and and then the experts from the think tank world uh, that they have on. Uh, and and I think it's one of the most sophisticated elements the way that Fox News simultaneously sort of demonizes um, educated elites while uh, using their own uh, experts and their own uh, intellectuals to uh, advance conservative arguments. So I don't know how this is possible, but, we, but we've gone the entire conversation thus far about your books, Fox Populism, and Donald Trump has not come up once. 
Donald Trump uh, in his early days had a very strong relationship with the New York tabloid newspapers. I wonder if you can place him into the uh, history and development of Fox News. Um, and then maybe we can talk about where his relationship is today. But is he involved in, in this early time period in 1996, 1997? Uh, is he on, on these, these shows or, or does his arrival uh, come, come much later? Well, I, I have to claim a little bit of ignorance on this topic. I'm not an expert on Donald Trump, but I will say that, yes, you, you can see um, he was a guest on O'Reilly and Hannity going back to the late 90s. He did make appearances, but really, uh, and as far as the New York scene, I mean, he's had a relationship with the New York Post. You know, one of the famous headlines with his affair with Marla Maples, I believe, was, you know, the greatest sex I ever had is, is kind of a classic uh, tabloid. New York Post headline. And, you know, we all, we've learned much about his relationship with National Enquirer uh, owner David Pecker. So Trump has been fully enmeshed in the tabloid culture of the, the 80s and the 90s, uh, you know, going back to those decades. And then if you fast forward to the 2000s, he, he uh, was at the center of one of the most successful reality shows of network television for 14 years. Uh, in addition, he's a, a full-blown fictional character in world wrestling entertainment, right? So Donald Trump's tabloid uh, pedigree is, is quite deep and extensive. And, but he, as far as Fox News goes, he doesn't really become a staple of Fox News programming until his appearances in early uh, you know, 2010, 2011 on Fox and Friends, where it almost became a convention to have him on. I believe there was a segment that was Monday mornings with Trump uh, in 2011. And this is where you see uh, him become much more, I guess you say, systematically a part of Fox's uh, brand. Uh, and in many ways, he embodies Fox's original brand. It's a synthesis between political populism and tabloid journalism. But as far as tracing him back to New York Post and, and the 90s, I need to learn more about that. Yeah, the, the relationship is, is one that is very hard to separate the two and how much of Trump's populism uh, is, is essentially Rupert Murdoch's populism or, or how much did Murdoch learn from Trump as he moves from uh, the United Kingdom and Australia uh, to the United States maybe is a topic for your next book, uh, <laughs> the, the current book that, that is available uh, from Cambridge University Press is Populism branding conservatism as working class. The author who you've been hearing from is Reese Peck. Reese, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. 